Today we're going to be finishing up our series on Job. And the first part of this series addressed what Job's situation was and kind of Job's defense for himself in that situation. And then last week we talked about Job's quote-unquote friends and some of the explanations they gave for why Job was going through that situation. So today is going to be the final part of this series. And what I want us to look at is the defense of God for the situation that Job is going through. And what is God's explanation for why Job is going through all of these things? And really the lesson that Job or that God wants Job to learn through all of this. So a lot of what we see God wanting to get across actually comes through a man named Elihu who was there. And Elihu doesn't speak at all till almost the end of the book because he's younger than everyone else and he doesn't want to speak out of turn. He wants to respect his elders and let them speak first. And it's only after they've spoken for a while and it seems like they're all done talking that Elihu finally speaks up. And so I want us to look at kind of the attitude that Elihu had and the arguments and explanations he provides. And we know that what Elihu speaks lines up with what God, um, what's on God's heart and, and the truth of the matter. Because remember, at the end of the book, God only rebukes the three friends that argued with Job. Elihu is not included in God's reprimand. So from that, we can conclude that the things that Elihu is saying is truthful. So let's look at when Elihu first speaks up. This is in Job chapter 32, verses 1 through 3. It says, So these three men, talking about Job's friends, stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned here, condemned him. So there's a few things from this passage here that I want us to realize. First, we see that Elihu comes from the family of Ram. That means that unlike Job's three friends, Elihu is also an Israelite like Job. He has grown up as one of God's chosen people. And really the first important thing that I want us to see from this is that Elihu is angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. And that's the first mistake that Elihu recognizes in this situation, is that Job has had all of these terrible things happening to him, and instead of coming to God's defense, or when his friends begin to make all these different explanations and arguments against God, Job doesn't say, well, this is the way, this is what God has decided, and so I need to accept it exactly the way that it is. He doesn't come to God's defense. Instead, he comes to his own defense. And when I was talking about Job a couple weeks ago, we know that that's really the area where Job got into trouble, was placing too much emphasis on his own righteousness. 
And because of that, he got into trouble with God. And that's something that Elihu recognized in this situation that upset him, is that Job was justifying himself in this situation. And he was giving reasons for why he shouldn't be going through it and wanting to bring a a complaint to God about it instead of defending God in this situation. And then we also see, and this is before Elihu even starts speaking, it's just showing us his attitude that causes him to speak. And the other thing that he's angry about, says he's angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. And this was something that frustrated Elihu because what these three friends were doing at that time was, first of all, they weren't comforting Job. (laughs) They weren't providing anything constructive for him to think about. But even worse than those things is that they were then placing themselves in God's position and passing judgment against Job. Even though they didn't have any good counter-arguments for Job's defense, they still said, well, this is what we think, so we're just going to say that you deserve this anyways. But remember, they didn't have the authority to do that. Only God had that authority. And this is really the first thing that we see um, Elihu having an issue with in this situation, was that Job and his three friends were not uh, they were not respecting and honoring the authority of God. And so eventually Elihu does speak up, and one of the things that we see him say is in chapter 34, verses 36 and 37. He says, Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin he adds rebellion. Scornfully he claps his hands among us, and multiplies his words against God. So here, Elihu is is recognizing the sin that Job portrays in the middle of the situation. He doesn't address Job's situation beforehand. Elihu wasn't there to witness that. He wasn't there to say what Job had done wrong because he wasn't there. But he does address what he does see in front of him, which is Job beginning to have an attitude of rebellion against God, questioning what God is doing and why he does things the way that he does. And so he says that he's, Job is rebelling, so that begs the question, well, what is he rebelling against? Well, really, again, he's rebelling against God's authority, God's right to do what God decides he wants to do. And rather than accepting that God has placed this suffering, or at least allowed this suffering, in Job's life, he instead wants to fight it. He wants to argue against it. And I'm really reminded of what Job says, first of all, in chapter 2, verse 10, when he's addressing his wife, which was really the right attitude to have. And I I told you um, a couple weeks ago that this is really the theme of Job as a whole. He, he asks the question, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Which is such a profound question. And the problem then is that Job then goes on to not really accepting that trouble from God. Or 
he kind of accepts that it happened, but he wants to question it anyways, which isn't a full acceptance of it. And what Elihu is saying is that there is now rebellion in Job's heart because he did accept the good from God and he is not accepting the trouble. And the point I want us to see about God that Elihu is making here is that the Almighty God owes no explanation for anything that he does. God is God, and there is no greater authority in heaven or on earth than God's authority. And because of that, because he is so much greater than us, he is the creator of all things, we have no right, no authority to question anything that God does or demand an explanation from him. Now, again, I talked about this a couple weeks ago that that doesn't mean we just um, don't use our brains, right? We don't still apply critical thinking and challenge ourselves to understand God to the best of our limited ability, but making sure that as we're in that pursuit of understanding that we aren't bringing accusations against God. And that's really the problem of questioning that I'm talking about here. It's not just having a question. It's not just being curious, because that's part of mankind, is that we are curious people. We want to learn and understand. That's not sinful. That's not wrong. But the problem is when we take that questioning against God in an accusatory manner, implying that God shouldn't be doing the things that he does. Then we are challenging God's authority. And one of the lessons that we are to learn from Job is that rather than challenging God's authority, we need to learn to accept God's authority. Accept that God is good. He cannot do anything wrong. There is no sin in God. We see that in Scripture. And so if everything that God does is without sin, then we have no right to question the things that he does. We have no right to challenge his authority. Instead, we need to accept the authority of God. And that's the first point that Elihu makes um, on God's behalf. So let's go on to another point that Elihu makes. It begins in chapter 34, verse 23 where he says to Job, God has no need to examine people further, that they should come before him for judgment. So this is his counter-argument to when Job was saying, oh, if only I could find where God is, I would go and plead my case before him, which wasn't Job's original idea, right? That came from what Elihu was saying, that Elihu said, well, if I was you, I would find God and, and challenge what he was doing, which... Elihu believed would be pointless anyways, but Job held on to that, and he was saying, I want to find God and, and bring my case before him, because if God knew what was going on in my situation, then he wouldn't be allowing it to happen. And Elihu's counter-argument to that then, what Job is saying, is that there's no need to bring an argument, there's no need to bring a case before God, because he sees everything that's happening. He has examined people further than anyone else. God completely 
understands the situation and even understands the situation better than Job does. He then goes on in chapter 37, verses 14 through 16, to say this. He says, listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who has perfect knowledge? So now what Elihu does is he highlights how Job and and people as a whole, they can't understand what God is already doing, what God has already done. They don't know what lightning is, right? This was you know, before Christ. And so they didn't understand those concepts. They didn't know how God had clouds hanging in the sky. And so Elihu is saying, if if we don't even understand what we can already observe about what God is doing, why do we think we can understand more than him when it comes to our particular situation? God understands it far greater than we do. Now, Elihu isn't the only one that comes to God's defense in Job. God himself, at the end of the book, speaks out to Job in an audible voice and asks him many questions. And I want us to look at at some of what God is saying when he first speaks to Job because it goes right along with this point that Elihu is making, which is that God has done such great things that we already can't understand. Who are we to question him further? So this is in chapter 38, verses 1 through 7. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand, Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? So here, God is questioning Job about all of creation, which God, as the creator, founded and created. And he's doing this to highlight exactly what Elihu was talking about, which is that Job really has no understanding compared to the mighty understanding and works of the Almighty God. And God then goes on in chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, says, The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. So here Job, or or God, gives Job the chance that Job has been waiting for. Where Job says, oh, if I could just find him and go to him and talk to him, I'd plead my case before him, and I'd make him see how this is a mistake. And here God says, all right, Job, talk to me. What did I do wrong? You who are so wise and full of understanding, 
so wise in the ways of science. That's a, that's a meme. Sorry, I couldn't help referencing that. But that's what God is saying. You must be so wise, obviously asking it sarcastically and saying this sarcastically. Go ahead. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me where I'm mistaken. And he gives Job exactly what he wanted, which Job then realized he didn't actually want. And Job says, I, I, he's speechless. He's like, I, I can't say anything. Here I am, face to face before God. What can I say? What argument could I make? How could I plead my case in a way that would give more understanding than you have? And this is the second point that I want us to see about this. Because it doesn't apply just to Job's situation. It applies to all of our situations. Which is that the Almighty God understands far more than we ever could. Far more than we could ever even begin to comprehend. God understands it all. So why did God do all of this? Well, it's not, maybe it's not something for mankind to know. Maybe it's something that we couldn't begin to understand. But we can take comfort in knowing that God understood the reasoning for this situation. God understood why he allowed Satan to torment Job in such a way. And I have my own personal theory about, what, about why God did this. But I am not God, and I do not understand it the way that God does. But for anyone out there who's like me, who just kind of needs some kind of idea, maybe this will be a consolation to you. Perhaps the reason why God allowed Job to suffer was because he was considering all of the people who would benefit from Job's example. All of us who read through the book of Job, who hear this story, and are able to learn what it means to be people of faith from it. Would that not be worth the small amount of suffering that Job went through? Do you think if Job knew all of the people who would benefit in their own spiritual life from what happened to him, don't you think that he would have been willing, being a man who placed so much emphasis on his acts of righteousness and the sacrifices that he made for other people, don't you think he would be willing to endure those losses and suffering for the sake of each and every person who benefited from this story? And I don't know for sure that that was what God's reasoning was, but it is something that Job would have never considered. Something that Job couldn't begin to comprehend in the middle of that situation. And that's what I want us to recognize. Is that the situations that we face, we may never receive answers for why it happened, simply because there is no way that we could truly understand it. But we can take comfort in knowing that God 
does. God sees everything that happens. Nothing is a surprise to him, and he understands it far more than we ever could. And so all we have to do then is recognize God's authority as well as God's wisdom and understanding as Lord of all creation. And that was one of the points that both Elihu and God made with Job. Now there's one more thing that Elihu speaks about that I want us to see. And this begins uh, with something he says in chapter 33, verse 14. When he's talking to Job, Elihu says, For God does speak, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. And I like this sentence, because it's implying that God has already spoken to Job about what is the reasoning for his situation, and Job just hasn't been able to recognize it yet. Job has completely missed it, probably because he's too busy arguing for his own righteousness and coming to his own defense instead of listening for God's guidance through the situation. He says, Job, God is always speaking, but oftentimes we just can't recognize it for many different reasons. Maybe we don't take the time to look for it. Maybe we don't quiet our lives enough to be able to listen closer to God. Whatever the reason, we oftentimes don't hear God, but it's not because God isn't speaking. It's because we are really bad at listening. And so he gives that to Job. Maybe God has already spoken to you, and you just haven't heard it yet. He then goes on in chapter 34, verses 31 through 33. He says, Suppose someone says to God, I am guilty, but will offend no more. Teach me what I cannot see. If I have done wrong, I will not do so again. Should God then reward you on your terms when you refuse to repent? You must decide, not I, so tell me what you know. So here he's painting this situation, this hypothetical scenario, where someone has sinned, and they basically say, well, I'm not going to do it anymore, so I should receive blessings from God because I'm not going to do it anymore. And Elihu poses the question, does God then owe you blessing because of that new righteousness? When in fact you haven't even fully repented for what you did wrong. You aren't coming to God on your knees. You aren't coming to God with a humble spirit, saying, God, please forgive me for what I've done. It's just saying, well, I and my righteousness just won't do it again. So bless me, God. And Elihu's saying, really just asking the question, why should God bless you at that time? on your own terms, when you haven't even asked for forgiveness for what you've did wrong, what you've done wrong, you're just saying, you're not going to do it again. And look at how good I'm going to be from now on. It is a difficult question, but one that hits 
right to the core of the problem that Job is having in his own spirit. He then goes on in chapter 35, verses 6 and six through 8. He says, if you sin, how does that affect him? Talking about God. If you sin, how does that affect God? If your sins are many, what does that do for him? Or what does that do to him? If you are righteous... What do you give to him, or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness only affects humans like yourself, and your righteousness only other people. So here he's really putting this into perspective for Job. If you live a glorious, righteous life, do you think that you're really doing some kind of grand service to God? That, jo- that God is going to be so humbled and appreciative of your righteousness? Of course not. He will be thankful that you followed his will. But that doesn't give you any power over God. Because it doesn't affect God directly. It, what Elihu is saying is, is whether or not we sin or live a righteous life, it doesn't affect God in, in some kind of profound way where God's life is hanging on a thread dependent upon what actions we take. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And regardless of what we do, he will always be the same. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, Elihu's not making the argument, so who cares if you sin or live a righteous life? It doesn't really matter. God doesn't care. He's saying, that's not what he's saying. God still cares about us. And you can look all over the scripture about how much God loves his people. And, and, not, and by his people, I just mean his creation, which is all people, everyone who God has made. God loves each and every person. God loves the entire world. So it's not that God doesn't care about the way that we live. What Elihu is saying is that the way we live doesn't affect God one way or another. So here is really challenging this perspective that, oh, if I live a righteous life, then somehow God owes me good things and not bad things. It doesn't affect God either way. But God still longs for us to live a righteous life, not for his sake, but for our sake. And we see this when he continues in chapter 36, verses 8 through 12. He says, But if people are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly, He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. So here Elihu is saying that when we sin, God corrects us so that we can repent of that sin, and he can lead us through obedience to him into a life of prosperity. And Job has been arguing, well, that's what I've been doing. I've, I've been obeying God, so why, it, why do I not have prosperity? 
But Elihu adds that if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. So the key there is, well, really two keys. The first key is repentance, and the second key is listening, which goes back to what he was saying in chapter 33, that God does speak, and maybe we just haven't heard it. He's telling Job, God doesn't want you to perish. God loves you, and he wants you to succeed, not because it affects him one way or another, but because he knows it affects you. And he's probably speaking to you already through this situation, and you're just missing it. You haven't taken the time to listen to what God is trying to tell you. And eventually, all of these arguments that Elihu makes and that God makes leads Job to this place of repentance. In chapter 42, the last chapter, verses 5 and 6, Job says, talking to God, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this is a big turnaround because Job, just a little while ago, was talking about how he would bring his case before God. But then when he meets God face to face, he realizes how small he is in comparison to God and repents of his rebellion against God. He repents for his arrogance. And this is where God wanted to lead Job, was to this repentance. Because after Job goes through this, and he repents for his arrogance, he repents for his rebellion, God brings Job out of this situation and into a life that is even more blessed than his previous one. And we see that through the rest of Job. Chapter 42 Verses 12 through 17. The Lord blessed the later part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapak. Nowhere in the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived a hundred and forty years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died an old man and full of years. So in all of these passages, we see the conclusion of Job, that God, the Almighty God, wanted to bring Job to this place of repentance, because repentance is what allows God to come into our life and separate us from sin, that sin that is destructive to us, that leads to death, God longs to separate us from that. Not because it will affect God one way or the other, but because God loves us so much and cares about us so much 
that he wants us to be blessed. But in order for God to bring us there, to separate us from that sin, we have the obligation of being repentant before God. This was the lesson that God wanted to teach Job through this, was that Job still needed repentance in his heart. Remember, he had begun focusing and relying too much on his own righteousness. There was something happening in Job's heart. It was beginning to harden. He was beginning to become too focused on his own self. And even though he hadn't fallen into a sin, he hadn't committed a sin, there was still an issue that needed to be addressed. He had become unrepentant. And God desired for Job to still be repentant, have that attitude of repentance in his own life, even without there being a sin, a particular sin that he needed to repent from, because that attitude would have led him into sin eventually. And so if there's a lesson for us to ultimately take from this, it's that we as believers must, and even those who are not yet believers, to recognize the importance of repentance, to realize that what you've done in the past is wrong, and to receive from God the forgiveness for those sins. It's not just about living a good life from then on out, not just being righteous, but to have that repentance that recognizes how serious your sin is and to lay it at God's feet. Remember, the price has already been paid for when Jesus died on the cross to lay that down and receive the forgiveness that God has for us. And that as we move forward, that we don't move forward in, in a prideful righteousness that says, look, God, at all the, look at how great I am and how deserving I am of blessing because of how obedient I am, when really the only obedience that God is desiring is obedience through repentance to humble ourselves before him, to realize that God is God and we are not, and to let him be not only the Savior that saves us from our sin, but the Lord of our life that will lead us in paths of prosperity. And when we still, in this fallen, sinful world, encounter difficult times that we don't say we deserve better because of our righteousness or want to argue with God and demand an explanation, but recognize that God has all authority, that God has all wisdom and understanding, and to remain humble and repentant before him and say, I will accept from God both good and trouble. Whatever the Lord's will is, let it be so. That's what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane 
before he was crucified, praying to the Father, saying, I don't want to go through this. If there is any way for me to avoid this trouble, any way for me to avoid this suffering in my life, please take it from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that is the attitude that we need to keep. That is what an attitude of repentance looks looks like. So that's the primary lesson from Job, is that God's authority and infinite wisdom should keep us repentant. I hope you've enjoyed this series. If you have any questions or comments about things I've talked about or maybe things about Job that I didn't cover, feel free to contact me through the Sermon in the Pocket Facebook page or email me directly at sermoninthepocket at gmail.com. And I encourage you to share this with other people so that the message can get out there and, and people can realize what an almighty God there is who loves them and longs to call them into his arms. So thank you for taking the time to listen, and I pray that God will bless you as you go throughout your day.